section thirty seven of a history of our own times volume three by justin mccarthy this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by pamela nagami chapter forty five palmerston's last victory part four yet it was as impossible as it would have been absurd for england to maintain in arms the cause of denmark to begin with the cause was not one which england could reasonably have supported the artificial arrangements by which the duchies were bound to denmark could not endure they were the device of an era and a system of policy from which england was escaping as fast as she could it was not a controversy which specially concerned the english people england was only one of the parties to the diplomatic arrangements which had bound up the duchies and the danish kingdom together lord russell was willing at one moment to intervene by arms in support of denmark if france would join england and he made a proposal of this kind to the french government the emperor napoleon refused to interfere he had been hurt by england's refusal to join with him in sustaining poland against russia and now was his time to make a return besides he had after the attempt at diplomatic intervention between poland and russia issued invitations for a congress of european sovereigns to assemble in paris and make a new settlement of europe the governments to which the invitation was addressed had for the most part returned a civil acceptance well knowing the project would come to nothing lord russell refused to have anything to do with the congress and gave some excellent reasons for the refusal the emperor napoleon was somewhat hurt by the chill common sense of lord russell's reply the emperor's invitation was evidently meant to be a document of historical and monumental interest it was drawn up in the spirit of what burke calls a proud humility it made allusion to the early misfortunes and exile of the writer and put him forward as the one sovereign of europe on whose face the winds of adversity had severely blown it must have been painful to find that so much eloquence and emotion had been put into a state paper for nothing the emperor's turn had now come and he would not join with england in sustaining the cause of denmark there was absolutely nothing for it but to leave the danes to fight out their battle in the best way they could lord palmerston put the matter very plainly in a letter to lord russell the truth is he wrote that to enter into a military conflict with all germany on continental ground would be a serious undertaking if sweden and denmark were actively cooperating with us our twenty thousand men might do a great deal but austria and prussia could bring two hundred thousand or three hundred thousand into the field and would be joined by the smaller german states at a later period of the struggle lord palmerston spoke with full frankness to count apony the austrian ambassador he explained that the english government had abstained from taking the field in defence of denmark for many reasons from the season of the year from the smallness of our army and the great risk of failure in a struggle with all germany by land but lord palmerston pointed out with regard to operations by sea the positions would be reversed we are strong germany is weak and the german ports in the baltic north sea and adriatic would be greatly at our command 
Therefore, Lord Palmerston warned the Austrian ambassador that a collision between England and Austria might happen if an Austrian squadron were to enter the Baltic in order to help the operations against Denmark. The Austrian ambassador explained that his government did not intend to send a squadron into the Baltic. This was an unofficial conversation between Palmerston and Count Apigny, and had no effect on the fortunes of the war or on the diplomacy that brought it to an end. The Danes fought with a great deal of spirit, but they were extravagantly outnumbered, and their weapons were miserably unfit to contend against their powerful enemies. The Prussian needle-gun came into play with terrible effect in the campaign, and it soon made all attempts at resistance on the part of the Danes utterly hopeless. The Danes lost their ground and their fortresses. They won one little fight on the sea, defeating some Austrian vessels in the German Ocean off Heligoland. The news was received with wild enthusiasm in England. Its announcement in the House of Commons drew down the unwonted manifestation of a round of applause from the strangers' gallery. But the struggle had ceased to be anything like a serious campaign. The English government kept up active negotiations on behalf of peace, and at length succeeded in inducing the belligerents to agree to a suspension of arms, in order that a conference of the great powers might be held in London. The conference was called together. The populations of the duchies, about whom the whole dispute had taken place, were beginning now to suspect that their claims to independent existence would very probably be overlooked altogether, and that they were only about to be passed from one ruler to another. They sent a deputation to London, and claimed to be represented directly at the conference. Their claim was rejected. They, the very people whose national existence was the question in dispute, were informed that diplomacy made no account of them. They had no right to a voice, or even to a hearing, in the councils which were to dispose of their destinies. The Saxon minister, Count Boist, who afterwards transferred his abilities and energies to the services of Austria, did the best he could for them, and acted so far as lay in his power as the representative of their claims, but they were not allowed any acknowledged representation at the conference. The deliberations of the conference came to nothing. Curiously enough, the final rejection of all compromise came from the Danes. Whether they had still some lingering hope that by prolonging the war they could induce some great power to intervene on their behalf, or whether they were merely influenced by the doggedness of sheer desperation, we cannot pretend to know. But they proved suddenly obstinate. At the last hour they rejected a proposal which Lord Palmerston described as reasonable in itself, and the conference came to an end. The war broke out again, the renewed hostilities lasted, however, but a short time. It was plain now, even to the Danes themselves, that they could not hold their ground alone, and that no one was coming to help them. The Danish government sent Prince John of Denmark direct to Berlin to negotiate for peace. They had had enough, perhaps, of foreign diplomatic intervention, and terms of peace were easily arranged. Nothing could be more simple. Denmark gave up everything she had been fighting for, and agreed to bear part of the expense which had been entailed upon the German powers by the task of chastising her. 
the duchies were surrendered to the disposal of the allies and nothing more was heard of the claims of the heir of augustenburg that claimant only got what is called in homely language the cold shoulder when he endeavoured to draw the attention of the herr von bismarck to his alleged right of succession a new war was to settle the ownership of the duchies and some much graver questions of german interest at the same time it was obviously impossible that the conduct of the english government should pass unchallenged they were quite right as it seems to us in not intervening on behalf of denmark but they were not right in giving denmark the least reason to believe that they ever would intervene in her behalf it would have been a calamity if england had succeeded in persuading louis napoleon to join her in a war to enable denmark to keep the duchies it would not be to the credit of england that her ministers had invited louis napoleon to join them in such a policy and had been refused we cannot see any way of defending lord palmerston and lord russell against some sort of censure for the part they had taken in this transaction it would have been a discredit to england if she had become the means of coercing the duchies into subjection to denmark supposing such a thing possible in the long run but her ministers could claim no credit for not having done so they would have done it if they could they had thus given europe full evidence at once of their desire and their incapacity their political opponents could not be expected to overlook such a chance of attack accordingly in the two houses of parliament notices were given of a vote of censure on the government lord malmesbury in lord derby's absence proposed the resolution in the house of lords and it was carried by a majority of nine the government made little account of that the lords always had a tory majority as lord palmerston himself had put it on a former occasion the government knew when they took office that their opponents had a larger pack of cards in the lords than they had and that whenever the cards came to be all dealt out the opposition pack must show the greater number in the house of commons however the matter was much more serious on july fourth eighteen sixty four mr disraeli himself moved the resolution condemning the conduct of the government the resolution invited the house to express its regret that while the course pursued by her majesty's government has failed to maintain their avowed policy of upholding the integrity and independence of denmark it has lowered the just influence of this country in the capitals of europe and thereby diminished the securities for peace mr disraeli's speech was ingenious and telling he had a case which even a far less capable rhetorician than he must have made impressive but he contrived more than once by sheer dexterity to make it unexpectedly stronger against the government thus for example he went on during part of his opening observations to compare the policy of england and france he proceeded to show that france was just as much bound by the treaty of vienna by the london convention by all the agreements affecting the integrity of denmark as england herself some of the ministry sitting just opposite the orator caught at this argument as if it were an admission telling against mr disraeli's case they met his words with loud and emphatic cheers the cheers meant to say just so 
france was responsible for the integrity of denmark as much as england why then do you find fault with us this was precisely what mr disraeli wanted perhaps he had deliberately led up to this very point perhaps he had purposely allured his opponents on into the belief that he was making an admission in order to draw from some of them some note of triumph he seized his opportunity now and turned upon his antagonists at once yes he exclaimed france is equally responsible and how comes it then that the position of france in relation to denmark is so free from embarrassment and so dignified that no word of blame is uttered anywhere in europe against france for what she has done in regard to denmark while your position is one of infinite perplexity while you are everywhere accused and unable to defend yourselves how could this be but because of some fatal mistake some terrible mismanagement in truth it was not difficult for mr disraeli to show mistakes in abundance no sophist could have undertaken to defend all that the ministers had done such a defence would involve sundry paradoxes for they had in some instances done the very thing to-day which they had declared the day before it would be impossible for them to do the government did not make any serious attempt to justify all they had done they were glad to seize upon the opportunity offered by an amendment which mr kinglake proposed and which merely declared the satisfaction with which the house had learned that at this conjuncture her majesty had been advised to abstain from armed interference in the war now going on between denmark and the german powers this amendment it will be seen at once did not meet the accusations raised by mr disraeli it did not say whether the ministry had or had not failed to maintain their avowed policy of upholding the integrity and independence of denmark or whether their conduct had or had not lowered the just influence of england in the capitals of europe and thereby diminished the securities for peace it gave the go-by to such inconvenient questions and simply asserted that the house was at all events glad to hear there was to be no interference in the war many doubted at first whether the government would condescend to adopt mr kinglake's amendment or whether they would venture upon a distinct justification of their conduct lord palmerston however had an essentially practical way of looking at every question he was of o'connell's opinion that after all the verdict is the thing he knew he could not get the verdict on the particular issues raised by mr disraeli but he was in good hope that he would get it on the policy of his administration generally the government therefore adopted mr kinglake's amendment still the controversy was full of danger to lord palmerston the advanced liberals disliked him strongly for his lavish expenditure in fortification schemes and for the manner in which he had thrown over the reform bill they were not coerced morally or otherwise to support him merely because he had not gone into the war against germany for no responsible voice from the opposition had said that the conservatives if in office would have adopted a policy of intervention on the contrary it was from lord stanley that there came during the debate the most unwarlike sentiment uttered during the whole controversy lord stanley bluntly declared that to engage in a european war for the sake of these duchies would be an act 
not of impolicy but of insanity there were members of the peace society itself probably who would have hesitated before adopting this view of the duties of a nation if war be permissible at all they might have doubted whether the oppression of a small people is not as fair a ground of warlike intervention as the grievance of a numerous population when however such sentiments came from a leader of the party proposing the vote of censure it is clear that the men who were for non-intervention as a principle were left free to vote on one side or the other as they pleased mr disraeli did not want to pledge them to warlike action any more than lord palmerston many of them perhaps would rather have voted with mr disraeli than with lord palmerston if they could see their way fairly to such a course and on the votes of even a few of them the result of the debate depended they held the fate of lord palmerston's ministry in the hollow of their hand lord palmerston seems to have decided the question for them his speech closing the debate was a masterpiece not of eloquence not of political argument but of practical parliamentary tactics he spoke as was his fashion without the aid of a single note it was a wonderful spectacle that of the man of eighty thus in the growing morning pouring out his unbroken stream of easy effective eloquence he dropped the particular questions connected with the vote of censure almost immediately and went into a long review of the whole policy of his administration he spoke as if the resolution before the house were a proposal to impeach the government for the entire course of their domestic policy he passed in triumphant review all the splendid feats which mr gladstone had accomplished in the reduction of taxation he took credit for the commercial treaty with france and for other achievements in which at the time of their accomplishment he had hardly even affected to feel any interest he spoke directly at the economical liberals the men who were for sound finance and freedom of international commerce the regular opposition as he well knew would vote against him the regular supporters of the ministry would vote for him nothing could alter the course to be taken by either of these parties the advanced liberals the men whom possibly palmerston in his heart rather despised as calculators and economists these might be affected one way or the other by the manner in which he addressed himself to the debate to these and at these he spoke he knew that mr gladstone was the one leading man in the ministry whom they regarded with full trust and admiration and on mr gladstone's exploits he virtually rested his case his speech said in plain words if you vote for this resolution proposed by mr disraeli you turn mr gladstone out of office you give the tories who understand nothing about free trade and who opposed the french commercial treaty an opportunity of marring all that he has made some of lord palmerston's audience were a little impatient now and then what has all this to do with the question before the house was murmured from more than one bench it had everything to do with the question that was really before the house that question was shall palmerston remain in office or shall he go out and the tories come in the advanced liberals had the decision put into their hands as lord palmerston reviewed the financial and commercial history of his administration they felt themselves morally coerced to support the ministry which had done so much for the policy that was especially the offspring of their inspiration
when the division was taken it was found that there were two hundred and ninety-five votes for mr disraeli's resolution and three hundred and thirteen for the amendment lord palmerston was saved by a majority of eighteen it was not a very brilliant victory there were not many votes to spare but it was a victory the conservative miss by a foot was as good for lord palmerston as a miss by a mile it gave him a secure tenure of office for the rest of his life such as it was the victory was won mainly by his own skill energy and astuteness by the ready manner in which he evaded the question actually in debate and rested his claim to acquittal on services which no one proposed to disparage the conclusion was thoroughly illogical thoroughly practical thoroughly english lord palmerston knew his time his opportunity and his men that was the last great speech made by lord palmerston that was the last great occasion on which he was called upon to address the house of commons the effort was worthy of the emergency and at least in an artistic sense deserved success the speech exactly served its purpose it had no brilliant passages it had no hint of an elevated thought it did not trouble itself with any profession of exalted purpose or principle it did not contain a single sentence which any one could care to remember after the emergency had passed away but it did for lord palmerston what great eloquence might have failed to do what a great orator by virtue of his very genius and oratorical instincts might only have marred it took captive the wavering minds and it carried the division end of section thirty seven